0: Welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's Program Notes for Upcoming Concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparola. Concerts by the CSO on Friday, November 1st through Tuesday, November 5th, feature Ricardo Muti and the orchestra, joined by violinist Leonidas Cavacos in a program including Beethoven's Violin Concerto, the world premiere of Dream for Orchestra by Bernard Rands, and Symphonic Poem No. 6, Mazeppa, by Franz Liszt. Here are Philip Husher's program notes on Bernard Rand's Dream for Orchestra, a work lasting about 15 minutes. This music was commissioned by our orchestra to celebrate the 85th birthday last March of one of America's most honored composers, Bernard Rands is the rare living composer who has enjoyed a long line of continuity with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which first played his music more than a quarter century ago and has performed his works under both its most recent music directors, Daniel Barenboim and Ricardo Muti, as well as under Pierre Boulez, the orchestra's late conductor emeritus. It was Boulez who introduced Rand's music to the Chicago Symphony, leading performances of Le Tambourin, Suites 1 and 2 in 1993. Born in Sheffield, England, and a student of music and literature at the University of Wales, early on, Ranz became fascinated with the lyrically inclined serial music of Italian composer Luigi Dalla Piccola. Ranz went to Italy in 1958 to study, not only with Dalla Piccola, but also with Luciano Berio and Roman Vlad. In the early 1960s, he attended the composition classes of Pierre Boulez and Bruno Moderna at Darmstadt. His understanding of music expanded greatly in the experimental hothouse environment of Darmstadt. But, as he says today, I was always with the Italians. In 1966, Rands was awarded a Harkness International Fellowship that brought him to the United States. He spent a year at both Princeton and at the University of Illinois. He returned to England to teach at York and at Oxford, but immigrated to the United States in 1975 and became a citizen in 1983. Within a year, this new U.S. citizen had won the 1984 Pulitzer Prize for his song cycle for tenor and orchestra, Canti del Sol, Songs of the Sun. Rans first came in touch with Riccardo Muti in the 1960s when both men were living in Florence, Italy, where Moody had been appointed music director of the Maggio Musicale, the first major post of his career. The first time Rands saw Mooty lead an orchestra, he knew that this was someone he wanted to work with. He was struck by the depth of the young conductor's passion, how the music seemed to come out of his entire body. In 1988, Rands received a note from Mooti, who had become music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra in 1980 and was looking for a composer in residence. When the two men met in Philadelphia, they bonded at once. They spoke Italian together, which may have helped break the ice, but in a deeper sense, they turned out to speak the same language. He understands my music, and he understands what motivates me to make it in the way it is, Rands says today. After Rounds became the Philadelphia Orchestra's resident composer in 1989, Moody commissioned, performed, and recorded several of Rounds' major works, including Le Timberant Suites 1 and 2, the earliest of his compositions on the subject of the Dutch painter Vincent van Gogh, which won the 1986 Kennedy Center Friedheim Award. Rand's interest in Van Gogh, which began when he visited the Vincent Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam on its opening day in 1973 and has only deepened over the past decades, reached a climax in April 2011 when Indiana University gave the premiere of his long awaited opera, Vincent. In Chicago, Mooty has continued to play and commission Rand's music, and Rand's is keenly aware of how significant it is for a conductor to stand by a composer for so many years. Rand's large catalog of works, which includes significant, highly regarded pieces of vocal, orchestral, and chamber music, dates back to 1960— He's been writing music steadily, one could say routinely, except that the product is so far from routine, ever since he came by his no-nonsense work ethic naturally. My father got up and went to work every morning, Ranz has said, and I believe I have to do the same. This has been his pattern, his way of life now for some 60 years, and he still gets up early and begins to write. I know best who I am when I'm working, he says. Dream is the third work the Chicago Symphony has commissioned from Rand's Following Apocryphos, which the orchestra premiered under Barenboim in 2003, and Danza Petrificata, which Moody introduced here in May 2011 and then took on tour with the orchestra that summer, giving performances in Salzburg, Lucerne, Luxembourg, Paris, and Vienna. It is the latest work from a composer whose style has remained steadfastly true to its earliest principles for some six decades. It is still made from the same tough, rigorously thought-through material that Rands has long been known for, but like much of his music in recent years, it hangs onto a sense of melodic line. Dream makes extensive use of a melody he composed in flight years ago, and consonants. Quote, in the 1960s, no one was more excited than I about the possible expressive expansion of dissonance, Rands says today. But in order for it to be completely effective, there must be its opposite somewhere. In other words, consonance. Long ago, Rand's music found its own equilibrium. I'm pretty tired of dissonance, Rands says with a shrug. Dream was very specifically written for the Chicago Symphony, which Rand's first heard when Sir George Schulte brought the orchestra to London nearly 50 years ago, and often hears in rehearsal and concert now that he lives in downtown Chicago with his wife, Augusta Reed Thomas, who was the orchestra's composer-in-residence from 1997 through 2006. I have a very clear oral sense of what the orchestra is, he says. And here is Bernard Rands himself on Dream. The title Dream is not intended to suggest a musical evocation of a specific dream. Rather, the musical form of this composition models some of the general characteristics of dreams— unpredictable and fantastic juxtapositions, exotic simultaneities, recognizable and mysterious images blended together, intense clarity, opaque chaos, moments of nightmarish intensity, all unfolding in unreal time and often linked by a single dominating element. This landscape of the mind allows me to explore a post-Debussean formal aesthetic I have been developing over many years. Some 35 years ago, to alleviate the boredom of a flight from London to Sydney, I composed an extended melody, not for any immediate composition project, just a challenging exercise. I have twice since revisited that melody, in London Serenade for chamber orchestra, where it has a simple melodic function, and Body and Shadow for large orchestra, where its inherent harmonies are explored. Here, in Dream, it is the DNA of the work, that is, every aspect of the composition. Its melodic, harmonic, rhythmic, contrapuntal, timbral, textural, contour, mood, and formal proportions are all derived from the melody. It is Dream's dominating and unifying element. At first fragmented, the tiny modules gradually accrue until the final section of the work is totally dominated by the complete melody played in unison strings, largamente, but still accompanied by slightly quirky, dreamlike harmonies in the winds. Words by composer Bernard Rands, and program notes by Philip Pusher on Bernard Rands' Dream. And now, on to Beethoven's Violin Concerto in D major, a work lasting about 42 minutes. Ideas for the Violin Concerto and the celebrated Fifth Symphony appear side by side in sketchbooks dating from 1806, reminding us that Beethoven often worked on a number of important pieces simultaneously, and that the lyrical and heroic sides of his musical nature were never completely separate. By 1806, the powerful C minor symphony had already been in the works for two years, but it wouldn't reach its final form until 1808. The serene and noble Violin Concerto, on the other hand, was written quickly in 1806 and finished just in time for its premiere that December. The concerto was written for Franz Clement, a gifted young violinist who was exploited at an early age by an enterprising father. Like Beethoven, he played in public for the first time when he was seven years old. But where the young Beethoven's early years were spent in Bonn, Clement was dragged throughout Europe's music centers by his father, who behaved as if he had a young Mozart in his care. In 1789, eight-year-old Franz started an album that in five years would encompass 415 pages of autographs and congratulatory messages gathered from leading figures in Germany, England, Holland, Belgium, and wherever his father took him. In 1791, when Haydn was in Oxford to receive his honorary doctorate, little Clement played at a concert in his honor, and Haydn dutifully signed his name in the boy's book. On a page dated 1794, Vienna, we find the autograph of Ludwig von Beethoven. It was a number of years before Beethoven and Clement met again, but after the violinist was appointed conductor and concertmaster of Vienna's Theater an der Wien in 1802, their paths often crossed. Clement was the concertmaster for the premiere of the Eroica Symphony in April 1805, and it was just a matter of months before Beethoven began his only violin to fulfill a request from Clement. Beethoven had started a violin concerto in the early 1790s when he was living in Bonn, but stopped work halfway through the first movement. Apparently, the concerto was written in some haste, and if popular legends can be trusted, was barely finished in time for the premiere on December 23, 1806, when it was performed without sufficient rehearsal. That same legend insists that Clement played the work at sight that night, and, as if credibility weren't already strained, that he interpolated a piece of his own between the first and second movements playing with his violin held upside down. Like a number of works that have overcome unsuccessful premieres to find a large and enthusiastic public, Beethoven's Violin Concerto took some time to earn a place in the repertory. It doesn't quickly or easily reveal its special beauty, and a number of early performances were coolly received. Not until the historic London performance of 1844, with the 13-year-old Josef Joachim as soloist and Felix Mendelssohn conducting, did this concerto finally win approval. In the meantime, at the suggestion of pianist-turned-publisher Muzio Clementi, Beethoven arranged the concerto for piano and orchestra to secure a wider audience. The transcription cost him little effort, essentially finding something for the left hand to do while the right hand added minimal ornamentation to the original violin part, but it also found little success in this form, sounding makeshift and proving that what's sublime on the violin may well seem commonplace on the keyboard. That this concerto was written especially for Clement is apparent, not only from the dedication, with its pun on clemency toward the poor composer, but from its graceful, delicate, and tender tone, all words used to describe Clement's elegant playing. Perhaps inspired by his soloist's musical nature, Beethoven finds an inner repose and an expansive, noble tone that's a remarkable contrast to the grand statements of the Eroica and Fifth Symphonies, until one remembers that these same years also produced the calm and gracious Fourth Symphony and the gentle G Major Piano Concerto. Donald Tovey was the first to point out that almost all of Beethoven's flashes of genius in this concerto are mysteriously quiet. The opening is a case in point, four soft strokes on the timpani answered by gentle chords in the winds it may well have seemed like madness to start a piece with unaccompanied drum beats in 1806 there's no precedent for such a thing but the soft dynamic measured tempo and calm wind music preclude our hearing it as the least bit revolutionary even in 1806 it drew no particular criticism What's considerably more troublesome and also marked piano is the entrance of the first violins, only eight bars later, imitating the drumbeats on D-sharp, probably the last note one would think of placing so prominently at this point in a D-major concerto. Telvi further emphasizes that this surprising D-sharp was written as E-flat in the first sketches, suggesting Beethoven's own ambivalence about its function, and since it's not harmonized and thus explained till later in the movement, it nags at us for some time. The most important moment in any concerto is the entrance of the soloist, which is handled differently and with great imagination in each of Beethoven's mature concertos. The novelty of the 4th Piano Concerto, written the same year as this one for violin, is the unprecedented appearance of the unaccompanied soloist in the very first measure. Here, Beethoven takes the opposite approach, delaying the soloist's first notes as long as possible, and even then, making the violin climb up almost unnoticed above the full orchestra before it begins to attract attention. From here, the solo plays tirelessly virtuosic music until the very last measures of the movement, even joining in after the cadenza, often singing at the very top of its range. There are many subtle touches here, like the absence of the drum beat when the solo violin plays the second theme, even though it had seemed an integral part of that music when the orchestra played it the first time. The Larghetto is, almost uniquely in Beethoven's output, music without action, conceived as a set of variations on a theme that goes nowhere, has no inherent contrast of material, and doesn't imply any change of key. The result is a romance, as Beethoven called it, of breathtaking stillness and restricted dynamic range which rises once in the middle and again at the very last bars over a multitude of piano and double piano markings. There's fresh detail and invention at every turn and, surprisingly, a growing sense of energy. The violin even slips in an entirely new theme after the third variation and then goes on to the fourth as if nothing has happened. Beethoven stays steadfastly in G major until the very end when the simple move to the dominant to introduce the finale sounds altogether extraordinary. Since this kind of contemplative music doesn't end easily, the violin takes the situation in hand and moves directly into the pastoral theme of the Rondo Finale. This simple, genial tune is so distinctive that Beethoven sees no reason to alter even one note whenever it comes back, thus saving himself the trouble of writing it out each time, a useful shortcut when writing on deadline. The finale's progress is straightforward, with few surprises except perhaps for two pizzicato notes from the soloist, the only ones in the whole concerto. As in the first movement, Beethoven makes something captivating of the soloist's trilling at the end of the cadenza, here dropping down into A-flat, the key most removed from D major, and then swinging back in a flash for the final bars. Philip Husher's program notes on Beethoven's Violin Concerto. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.